We present Something Like Hope by Patrick O'Connor, read by Mike Rivarno. On the day of the interview, Raphael wakes at 3.56am, his mind immediately busy with how the day will go. When he next looks, the clock reads 4.08. He groans, turns, and Zofia stirs but doesn't wake. He sits up, puts the headphones on and tunes into the BBC World Service, a documentary on the biblical exodus from the Middle East and North Africa. After a few minutes, he turns it off, reaches for his reading light and makes a to-do list. Mind still buzzing, he picks up his book. He reads to the last page. It's 6.25. He gets up, makes tea, fills two mugs and returns to bed. As Zofia comes to, she reminds him about their dinner date with Fran and Christoph, the postponed visit to her mum and dad, and repairing the chair with the wobbly leg. He adds them to the list. At breakfast, Zofia goes through their thoughts about moving house. Her choice, his choice, what would be right for the baby when it comes. She knows he isn't listening. He knows she's talking only to distract him. At the last minute, as they're both about to leave for their workplaces, she gives him a hug. Don't stress about it. You're the best. Knock him dead. He flinches as if from sleet. Zoff, it, it's all a setup. No, Raphael. You have loads more experience than Rob, and David said he'll support you. He recites the litany. They redefined the job to get rid of me. It's their way of getting back at David. They're sacking me because they can't sack him. They've been through all this before. It's a ritual. For her, David's support is key. She met him once at a dinner party and was mesmerised. He drives in, eyes screwed up against the champagne sunlight, the radio on. The local station is playing cream, sunshine of your love. It's been continually cloudy since Valentine's until today. The sun's giving him a headache. He talks over the music. How do I see my career unfolding? Hmm, interesting question. I'd say my confidence in any kind of desirable future is a big, fat duck egg, Squire. Thanks for asking. When he arrives at work, there is no sign of Rob, his friend and job rival. He sits in front of his laptop, hands idle, eyes not moving. He hears David lead two of HQ's divisional directors, Hodgson and Fuller, into the meeting room next to his office. Banter about the fine weather and summer holiday plans settle to a murmur. Ten minutes pass. Still no Rob. His relief vies with a growing disquiet. His mobile rings. It's him. Oh, Rob, where the hell are you? Well, I'm withdrawing my application. I can't talk about it now, but maybe over a pint when the dust settles. I'll phone Hodgson when he arrives. Christ, Rob, he and Fuller are already here. Better get on, then. The field's all yours, mate. Soon after, he hears the meeting room phone ring. David's voice, then Hodgson's, then a short discussion among the three. David is at his open door. Raphael, there's been a development. Rob has withdrawn. Oh, they're absolutely furious. 
You can imagine. As soon as the way forward's decided, I'll let you know. Another 25 minutes pass. David appears again. The interview is going ahead. Yep, they've tried to abandon it. I insisted, so they were on to personnel. Personnel were sterling, told them they had to proceed. Matheson himself phoned back to give them both an earful. So, just play a straight bat. Nothing to worry about. All right. Come on in. He heaves himself out of the office chair and follows David next door. The divisional directors hold him to account for decisions it's David's to make and barely question him about his relevant experience. David sits back, enjoying the impotent fury of his antagonists. At the finish, Raphael returns to his office to wait. Ten more minutes pass. The HQ directors sweep into his room, coats on, briefcases in hand. They stand over him like a couple of hooded crows and gracelessly confirm the job offer, hedging it with several caveats. Their bodies almost jam in the doorway in their haste to leave. He sits. After a few minutes he runs for the gents, crashes into a cubicle and vomits. When he eventually emerges into the corridor, he hears David's commanding voice in the open general office. He wanders towards it, walks in. David is sitting on one of the desks, his legs dangling, giving a blow-by-blow -blow account of the interview. All five staff grouped in front of him. When he notices Raphael, he stops, then quickly recovers. Ah, Raphael, I was just briefing our colleagues. I'm, I'm sure they'll join me in congratulating you. Joan and Imelda do just that, smiling inanely. Even worse, two others offer sympathy. Carl puts a hand on his shoulder and leans in for his ears only. You're better than any of them, mate. Effing suits. Meg's approaches, her face arranged to say, I feel your pain. She wraps her arms around him and rubs his back. Oh, Raffy, so sorry. Coral, the only one likely to know how he's feeling, hangs back. Stricken. Raphael nods to her. Her eyes tear up. He looks away. He returns to his work den. After a few minutes staring at the laptop screen again, he gets up and goes to David's office. Seeing Raphael at the open door, David puts aside the document he's been annotating. Now, Raphael, close the door. I'm feeling unwell. I, I need to go. David sees him all the way out to the car park smothering him with praise for the calm way he has dealt with such a difficult situation. The sunshine is making him wince. Are, are you okay to drive? Should I phone Zofia to collect you? A seagull starts to fuss from the top of the nearby building, followed by a raucous antiphony even closer by. Raphael says something that David doesn't hear. Sorry? Raphael raises his voice. They didn't ask me if I'd accept the job. David looks queasy for a moment. Well, there you go. What can you expect? They must have broken every rule in the book. If they'd cancelled, I'd have had good grounds for a complaint. Nor did you. What? You didn't ask either. Well, I, uh, I know your family situation, of course, says David, smiling. The gull chorus stops. Raphael gets into the car, opens the window and starts the engine. Well, okay, Raphael. Well, just for the record, then, you do accept the post. In response, he drives away, tyres spraying pea shingle behind him. 
Raphael pulls into a lay-by a short distance from the office. Home is the first turn off the next roundabout. The second exit is for the coast. One day he'll recount the image that floods his mind, driving straight over the cliff, the onrush of rocks and spume in endless replay. He takes the coast road. He drives down the winding highway to the unseen port below. Since boyhood, the imminence of the sea has always made him hold his breath. But just before its panoramic reveal, he's forced to slow and stop at the tail end of a queue. He waits. It's dual carriageway. He can't turn back. He turns the radio on, walking on sunshine. On the opposite carriageway, there is a long, single file of lorries moving slowly up the hill. When he looks across, he sees the men, all young, some bareheaded, black-haired, unshaven, others hooded. They're running in twos and threes, trying to open the enormous back doors of the lorries, seen so often on the TV news, happening now in front of his eyes. The procession on the other side stops too, and he watches intently as one of the men succeeds in getting a door open. Another man scrambles up into the truck and turns immediately to offer his companions a hand up. Here comes the sun, and I see it's all right. Traffic on his side starts to move. A minute later, as he descends, three police cars tear up the hill, lights flashing, sirens wailing. He drives into town and finds a place to park. He walks down past shops and office blocks, and there are more abandoned premises and pound shops since he was last there six months ago. Outside KFC, an elderly couple approaches. The man speaks first. Oh, excuse me, sir. Can you tell us where the centre of town is? Well, this is it. Oh, uh, I was here before, see, uh, just before D-Day. It was quite a town then. Everything has its day, says the woman. So what the hell are we doing here, Agnes? You're right, dear, hon. You tell me. Raphael starts to move off. The old man reaches out to touch his arm. Uh, can I just say, I, I hope you don't mind, I so admired you British. I talk about Dunkirk spirit, but I'm kind of puzzled. Back home we're talking about having to build a wall to keep the Mexicans out. Long, I grant you, but then... You have 30 miles of sea between here and the continent. Some wall, right? See what I'm saying? Why build a tunnel? Raphael reverts to the accent of his childhood. They build it to make it easy for us to get in. Uh, us? The homeless, tempest-tossed migrants. Oh, I, I thought you and in your suit and all. Agnes tugs at her husband's arm. C come along, Arthur. We're holding the young man up. A breeze blows up from the port, rustling their twin cagoules as they go. Raphael shouts after them. Bring me your poor, your huddled masses. He stands for a moment, the ghost of a smile on his face. Back at the car park, he's ascending the concrete stairwell when he hears shouting. As he emerges onto the second floor, he sees two men running. They stop and appear to look for something or someone in and out of the parked cars. They are bulky, pasty-faced, shaven-headed, booted. A small movement to his left takes Raphael's attention, and he sees him, 
the quarry, a black-haired youth crouching behind a car. His and Raphael's eyes lock. He appears frozen in fear. And then a voice shouts out, Oi! Dildo! Doughface! Lost something! He looks behind him. No one. When he looks back, the boot boys are both staring at him. The voice must have been his. Doughface turns to him as the other continues the hunt. It's none of your business. Walk away. Now! Doughface makes a threatening feint towards him, raising a fist. Raphael notices the knives both of them carry. He doesn't move. You deaf! I said walk away! Doughface moves towards him, eyes bulging. Again, he hears the voice. You're wasting your time. He's just scarpered. The men exchange a look. Where? The shopping mall exit, over there. At that moment, the youth decides to break cover and run for it. Before the hunters have a chance to react, Raphael walks quickly to his car. He opens the boot and grabs a wheel brace and tyre lever from it. When he looks up again, the chase has resumed. The youth is running his way. He holds out the wheel brace. Take it. Raphael pushes him away to the left, moves right. The hunters split, each pursuing their own target. Raphael ducks down and doubles back to join the youth. They wait behind a van till one of the hunters appear. Psst! Dildo! Dildo has no time to defend himself. The youth darts forward and hits him with the brace just above his right eye. There is a moment of stillness. A small opening in Dildo's skin begins to spurt blood, half-blinding him. He cries out for help as his legs give way. He sags, dropping the knife as he grabs the mirror of the van to stop himself falling to the ground. Raphael indicates for the youth to follow him. They easily avoid a faltering doughface looking for his injured mate. Once safely inside Raphael's car, the youth looks to him. His face is lit up as if in ecstasy. Zofia listens without interruption as he relates the story of the day's events. His reduction to the role of David's rescue dog, his humiliation and shame in front of the staff, his anger and confusion, the spur-of-the-moment drive to the coast. He doesn't mention the random stuff, the migrants, the American couple, the car park incident, nor, well, not yet, the text message he sent David just before returning home. I thought you'd call straight away. Let me know how you'd got on. I needed time to think. She leans back to look him in the face. All right. First off, you'll have to apologise to David. The thing is, it, it's okay. The job's yours. We can move before the baby comes, hopefully, and we can be a family. Oh, you've done so well. I don't think you know that. But it's okay. Hmm? Everything's going to be okay. Talk to me. I am talking to you, Raph. I'm talking to you now. Before he can say anything else, the doorbell rings. He stops her as she rises to answer it. It'll be for me, I expect. She follows him as he goes out to the hall. She sees the blue flashing light as Raphael takes his coat from the rack. Police! Raph! What's going on? Raph? He opens the door. Two police officers are standing under the canopy. Mr. Saeed? I'm coming. Give me a second. 
He turns back to Zofia. I'm just going to make a statement. Something happened. You're not being arrested. I'm a witness. He shrugs his coat on. I've quit the jobs off. She stares at him in disbelief. He cradles her face in his hands. It's all right. You're not to worry because things will be different now. Better. We'll talk when I get back. The panic in her eyes turns to something else as she watches him follow the two officers to their car. Something like relief. A bit of excitement mixed in. Something like hope. That was Something Like Hope, written by Patrick O'Connor, read by Mike Ravano, recording and editing by Robbie Burgess. This was an Old Dolly production.